Hi, and welcome to another episode of Our Memphis History. Today's episode is about the Chinese in Memphis. We'll talk with members of the Chinese Historical Society of Memphis in the Mid-South. We'll discuss the history, the lifestyle, the businesses, the home life, and the cultural contributions of the Chinese in Memphis. Well, today we are fortunate to be with two members of the Memphis's Chinese Historical Society. This is a program we've been trying to do for a long time, uh, trying to get everybody together. And uh, we're, it's very informal, but would like, I would, today I've, I've got several questions, things that I'd like to talk about. And I'd like for you first to, Emmy, will you introduce yourself first? Yes, uh, my name is Emmy Dunn. I was born in Mississippi, but have lived in Memphis since 1960. And what do you do normally? Well, I know what you do because you're on the Historic Commission with me, but <laughs> and uh, she's our secretary. Yeah. So tell us about that. Uh, being on the uh, Shelby County Historical Commission, uh, so I came on about two or three years ago. It was two years ago. We two. came on together. Well, I, I was there uh, uh, unofficially, actually. I. Uh, at, when Jimmy Ogle was there, mm -hmm. and I just went to the meetings every month uh, until they, uh, uh, until I was uh, yeah, until you got commissioned. the uh, commission yeah. to be approved. Yeah, my name is uh, Jin Liang Cai. Uh, I'm from Beijing, China, so I'm a new immigrant. Uh, I came to U.S. in 1986 as a student and uh, went to school in Pittsburgh and then worked there. In 2000, I moved to uh, Memphis uh, when I joined FedEx. Mm -hmm. So I'm currently sort of, we started the Historic Society 2016. 2016. Yeah, so that's when I met Amy and a bunch of other mm -hmm. folks. And, um, you know, I was surprised. Oh my God, Chinese have been here for a long time. <laughs> so that's how I got involved. <laughs> Had there ever been a group that you were aware of before y'all started doing this? Not on the regarding history, I have to say, yeah, yeah. and uh, because again, you know, I'm a new immigrant, so I kind of, you know, trying to make a living, go to school, and raise a family, and it, not until I came to Memphis, I realized through accidentally reading articles, you know, about Chinese American histories here in Memphis, more than a hundred years, so like 2016 when we got together, we said we got to do something because. Many new people, new immigrants like me, never heard about this. Right. And it changed my um, perspective a sure. lot. Yeah. Regarding groups, uh, how to say, there is, in the beginning, in the eight, 1840s, 1860s, the Chinese have always had what they call a mutual aid organization. Mm -hmm. And that mutual aid organization there are several, but the one came here to Memphis was called the Lung Gong Tien Yi, L-U-N-G-K-O-N-G-T-I-N-Y-E-E, -E, a mutual aid organization that helps the, the new uh, settlers to in in government uh, uh, what to apply for, uh, if they need money, if they need help finding a business. It was also a hostel for the so-called bachelors who were trapped here uh, because of the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. And it was also a family center because 
the Lungan Tinyi was a uh, organization for four families with certain surnames. And so that, that was a family center. They provided activities for the children, picnics, outings. They had several banquets at the, uh, at the uh, community house. The first one was on 3rd Street, where there is a Chinese historical plaque across from the FedEx Forum. And then uh, after the war, the need for a bigger building uh, was uh, required. So they moved to Vance, uh, but that building has now been torn down. You said uh, just certain surnames. Was it just certain Chinese could go to that community? Yeah, so I can't remember all of the yeah. surnames. There's four last names. was really based on a Chinese legend. Okay. You know, there is many years ago, there's Chinese history, there's four, four blood brothers and who... Uh, build their blood sort of through, uh, what's it called? They swear to each other, sure. to, to loyal and yeah. so on so forth. Yeah. So their four names, Liu, Zhao, uh, uh, Zhang, Chan, right? And, the, and anyway, so yeah. Yeah. so that become a legacy that, uh, that, that sort of like a legend, you know, sure. so that many Chinese, and if they're delineated from their family, so they think they're part of that blood brotherhood. Yeah, that's interesting. Did, it, did that cover most of the Chinese or just a few? Uh, well, just a few because there were different kinds of mutual aid organizations. Right. You could be an organization by village. You could be an organization by uh, names, again. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. There are different ways. You uh, probably heard about like in San Francisco, there are tones, they call tone. Sure. Really, in some way, there are community organizations uh, set up to for self protection, sure. you know, for self uh, association yeah. and so on and so forth. Because you think about when they came here, you know, this is their desegregation or right. even before segregation time. So they have to yeah. help each other. Sure, that's okay. how. That's interesting. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about your contributions. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go all the way back. Let's go back as far as we can go back, as far as, as y'all are aware of, as far as I'm aware of. You know, who were the first Chinese families here? What did they do for a living? And how did they deal with the persecution that has followed this? And y'all know, know what we're talking about here. How does this fit? So you're, you're asking for the, the first, first Chinese, yeah, think Chinese about it. Yeah, the, first to settle the, the original, fam yeah. the original yeah. families that were here. Well, they're. they're I wouldn't phrase it as original families because they didn't come over with their wives. These were single men, married men, or single men who came over because wives were excluded or barred by immigration laws. So we had a bachelor of society. So, if, so the first person to settle in Memphis are laundry men. And the reason we know this because there was an ad placed in a local newspaper. His name is Sam G, but that, that phonetically written, that doesn't really mean a whole lot. In a way, he was probably not by himself. He was probably with a partner. They opened their laundry on um, third, second, third and Bill. Yeah. Third and Bill. Okay, that was 1873. 
And the fact that it was placed in, in a newspaper says that he was not a transient, that he intended to settle here. And we take that year as the year that the Chinese settled in Memphis. At that time, there were a lot of transients, laborers, single men looking for jobs up and down the Mississippi River. They finished building the railroad. They're still building the, they were still building the railroad in Texas and Mississippi, but the plantations were also employed people. Uh, but the Chinese did not like the plantations, so they went into um, uh, uh, opening up small businesses mainly grocery stores. I know in the city directory it goes, you, there's a, one or two uh, Chinese names that are in the city directory uh, back in the, the middle 1870s. Right, that's in, what you're in talking 1880s, about. In 1880s, and they would have had to have been uh, here. They yeah. could not have been a, a transient type person. Right. They would have had, had to have established residency pretty yeah. much. So, but, but there was not a lot of them. Um, how do y'all feel about and, and there was persecution. I, I came across a, an article where a, a, a Chinese family had been robbed and killed in the 20s here. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if it was, I don't, I don't think it was an, it was an ethnic thing. I think it was just like a robbery, robbery which right. we had a lot of back yeah. then, which we have today. Yeah. But uh, how do y'all feel about how the Chinese people were treated poorly by others? Yeah. Well, I'm going to... And it was common. Yeah, yeah. That, that really happened in the 20s, more accidental, just like, you know, violent, random uh, violent going out here. But one other thing I would say, add to what Amy said, you know, why the Chinese here, even as a laundry person, right? So that really get back to the 1870s, when California has tens of thousands of Chinese laborers arrived to build, you know, first the gold mine, then the railroad. So they become a force population, I think it's very high percentage back then in California. And then the economy went down, it was a terrible time, so there were a lot of anti-Chinese riots uh, because they blamed the Chinese for, you know, uh, all the problems in the United States. There is an Irish Workers' Party, whatever it is. So they really, that started the anti-Chinese violence and sentiment. That drive a lot of these Chinese in California across the country, you know, after especially that's after Transcontinental Railroad was built. So a lot of them disperse across country and one of the trade they pick up was laundry because it's easy, it doesn't need to take a lot of capital to do. They were doing a lot of that in California already. So that's why Memphis, you know, the laundry men became came to Memphis. So they, they continue to do business in laundries and then pick up grocery stores and so on and so forth. Now the grocery store, now you're more infiltrated in old neighborhood, you know, especially low income neighborhood. And that's you get start getting, you know, really the, the robbery, the violence happening, you know, uh, in the neighborhood. And Memphis in particular, uh, uh, Amy just recently sort of trying to collect violence against Chinese in the Memphis area. And there you can see, we have a few pictures eventually can come up. That's about really the, the articles, right? Many articles reported burglaries and, and, and There's a, murders. There's a large like uh, Chinese population in, in northern Mississippi. Right. Yeah. I went to college in, in yeah. northern Mississippi and I, I got to know Wally Pang and Tedford Pang and 
and uh, they were down in like Lambert and Marks and everything. And they, Tedford uh, owned he owned the dress shop in town. He owned right. a liquor store in town. He owned a grocery store in town. And and I guess I guess they're still alive. I haven't talked to them in a long time, but I know that there was a, a large group. Yeah. That were and her her maybe Amy could speak about this. I mean, her parents, you know, were from. North of Mississippi, but Mississippi got there running grocery stores, and 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 why they set up in Mississippi, what neighborhood they set up. I mean, really, it's a very interesting economic dynamic. You know, back during segregation time. Okay, let's talk about the Chinese Exclusion Act, which happened on May the sixth, eighteen eighty-two, uh, by President Chester Arthur. How did that apply? Or did it apply to Chinese in Memphis? Um, well, the law, let's talk about law first. The law primarily banned Chinese labor from coming to the United States or become citizens even if they have been in the United States. Right. And it, it did not apply, the way I understand it, it did not apply to businessmen, students, diplomats, yeah. people that, that were of money and power. It only applied to workers. Right, laborers. And, and you know, we've had things through the years in Memphis where if you were a public employee, police, fire, or whatever, you right. were not allowed to have a, a side job right. yeah. because they said it took away a job from a citizen right. who would, uh, which, that doesn't apply anymore. Our union yeah. put a stop to that. Yeah. So it's, it's really, it's, 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 it's with the support of the Workers' Party in California, primarily, to really find outlaw labor competition among, you know, the, uh, from the Chinese. And then, really, that's, the impact of that is tremendous because then they couldn't become citizens. They cannot vote. Okay. And then they're afraid of leaving the United States, then they come. They cannot come back. So of course, many decided to return. So on that part, you know, I mean, do you want? I'm trying to just touch a little bit, but the the, the impact is tremendous because it lasted until 1943. 1943. Yeah. Okay, after the war, War II started because China became allied of the United States. They stopped that, but really. It did not fundamentally change the whole scheme of things until 1965, right. you know, as the, the new Immigration Act. So really the, the impact of 70-some years, uh, the Chinese population in the United States was decimated during that time because you can't bring families so there's fewer children. And then the people, that's why she talked about bachelor parties, bachelor's society, mm -hmm. because these people decided I'm not going back but they don't necessarily marry and have family, so they end up in, you know, the clubhouses, and they really until their last breath, you know. So, Amy, you want to add anything yeah. to that? Yeah. So, it's not just the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act; it's all the other immigration laws afterwards mm -hmm. that uh, that affected Chinese families. For one thing, fear, fear of deportation. Because Chinese, because of the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, Chinese were still coming in, but through a different way. And it was, it was the paper son or paper daughter system. Mm -hmm. So how did this happen? Because of the 1906 earthquake, 
in San Francisco. It destroyed all, all the vital records. So the Chinese living out there say, well, I can go to the uh, offices and claim to be a citizen, which he did. So now he, he is a citizen. He can go back to China and, and traverse between China and the United States. So when he goes back to China and he comes back, he claims to have a son and the government gives him a paper. So this paper, he can legally bring his own son or he can sell this paper to a family that wants to bring their son in. So the paper son has to assume the identity of the name on the paper, has to learn everything about the village, the family, memorize it because they're going to grill him when he goes through immigration in San Francisco. So the fear that they came in as a, as a paper son was always heavy on the families. Um, so that's a big legacy. You probably, uh, if anybody interested, should look at the Alice, 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 Alice Island. Island. Mm -hmm. There's a museum there. I'll story about the, the, the earlier, the interrogations, the uh, isolation and detention in that place because they were trying to drill the new immigrants about whether they are true. No, Andrew Allen. Andrew Allen. Yeah, Andrew Allen. Yeah. Yeah. Ellis is in New York. Andrew Allen. Yeah. So, so really, it is really, they're, they're really uh, in detention for a long time. Many of them probably had to be, you know, returned, rejected under the United States. So there's the legacy of 1882 is tremendous, and we just touched a little bit really the surface here. You know. the, the other uh, uh, immigration law that he mentioned was that uh, it was the 1888 Scott Act that um, if the Chinese person goes back to China, it was not guaranteed that he will be allowed back in. So that force trapped the Chinese person, married or single. It affected the single men especially because they couldn't go back to China and marry. There, there were hardly any Chinese girls in the United States at that time. And so the married man could not go back and visit his family. So as a result of the single man not going back to China, there are many instances in the South where the single man, quote unquote, marries a black lady or a white woman. And so we, we have the, the descendants, and I've, I've gone, done many genealogies of Chinese men who have married uh, interracial marriages. So that, that's one legacy from, from this yeah. uh, that probably could not have been easy either. Yeah. yeah, I want to add another positive legacy. This is very important because it's really impact how we live today. Okay, how we claim birthright citizenship in the United States. The very one of the uh, landmark cases back when during the uh, during the Chinese Inclusion Act was uh, his name is uh, what Ark. Ark uh, Long. Yeah. Anyway, so he was born in the United States. Then he went to visit China, his relatives. Upon his return, he was rejected by the immigration inspector that saying, you are not belong here and you got to be sent back to, United, to China. So, but he has family, he take that immigration 
inspector rejection to court. Eventually, the case went up all the way to U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, so eventually the court look at all the you know ramifications of rejecting this boy mm-hmm. as a you know not as a U.S. citizen. Think about Irish and you know all these Italian or you know they, have, they may be born here, but their parents are not citizens because they're not allowed to be naturalized citizens. So they made the decision that as long as you were born in the United States, you are entitled citizenship. So that case really set in stone the birthright citizenship because prior to that, was just a constitution say, you know, as long as you're U.S. born, you're you're a citizen. But that, I got to find a name. I think his last name, Ark. So it's a landmark case. Yeah, it's a landmark case really defined even today. Still, it's a legacy if you think about that, right? Because that's how defined America today. We'll, We'll find that. Uh, I want to mention something here that, that I went two years ago when I started doing the initial research on this project. I came across something that, that blew me away. And that was in July of 1889, we had the Memphis Chinese Labor Convention here, which was actually created by the Chamber of Commerce, which was very powerful here at the time since we were a cotton and lumber mm-hmm. producing big money place, right. yeah. bigger than most of the other cities in the South. And then they came up with this, and then in this article that I found, it said this was the nation's first Chinese labor convention, and it was held here. So we had to have enough Chinese people in this area to bring them in to talk about issues of the day, good and bad and, and whatever. Do, we, do y'all know about this? There was not a meeting of Chinese people. It was a meeting of businessmen and plantation owners to decide to hire Chinese or not to work on the plantations. This was 1869 was, was reconstruction. They had no labor on their plantations. They wanted cheap labor, and and they wanted to know if the Chinese were feasible, if they were going to accept, you know, cheap money, you know, less wages to work on the plantations. So at the end of the convention, the business leaders decided, no, they were not going to hire Chinese because they were heathens because they, they look different, because they eat different, because they spread disease, and so on. So, but there were a few plantation owners who decided to hire Chinese, and Try these plantation see. owners in Arkansas, and Louisiana, sugarcane plantations, the cotton plantations, they, they did hire, but the, the Chinese did not really like it. In my opinion, the Chinese did not come to the United States to be peons, peasants in a new country. They left China. They wanted something more. And they decided to open their own businesses, whether it be laundry, restaurant, or grocery stores. And the, uh, after Reconstruction opened the perfect opportunity, if you think about it, because the uh, traditional, the old plantation had been disbanded, right? The blacks are free. 
but there really there's no economy catered to their needs. So, so the Chinese find a niche really to serve the black community. So if even you go to those, uh, I visited uh, Greenville, uh, Clark's, uh, Cleveland, and so on and so forth. But even there was still some old Chinese stores in the neighborhood. They typically on the fringes, the black neighborhood and the, and, and the white neighborhoods right, more, more or less in the middle because they can serve the black neighborhood, but as still continue their relationship, commerce relationship, credits also with the white business community. So, so I think that really created a perfect economic boom for the Chinese in the South because of really the, uh, the segregation. And that really attracted more people from around, from China to the South. So that gave me, I remember, you know, we, there's some statistics about really very little town throughout Mississippi Delta, you would find a Chinese grocery store. And even I talk to many black friends, sometimes, you know, the older black friends, they well, yeah, we remember back when. So that is a very interesting uh, phenomenon. And it lasted until probably in the, uh, the 60s and 70s, as the, you know, desegregation finally arrived. So the black population can receive really uh, services in, you know, all uh, commerce venues. And one of the book, if anybody interested in read, is uh, James Lowen. He's a historian from uh, Harvard. He did his field research when he was a PhD student and st he studied this subject okay. in the 70s. So the timing was, couldn't be more perfect because it was the end of the legacy and start something that desegregation. So they documented in great detail about the lives of Chinese and, and, uh, and how their relationship with white and black. The book name is Mississippi Chinese. Okay. We'll link to that book if we can mm -hmm. find it. Question. The families that are here today, that y'all know, can any of them track their relatives back into the 30s or the 20s or the teens here in Memphis? It's Amy's specialty, <laughs> genealogy. <laughs> well, um, so the Chinese started coming uh, here uh, well, more in the 1930s, uh, there are um, grocery stores. I think uh, Billy Lee, he can track, his, his parents came, well, actually, no, they came uh, they after the war, yeah, 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 yeah. 1947. In the 1930s, uh, when I mean, you did a lot of research not, in not. using Ancestor.com, right? The question yeah. is, can you, do you find a lot of information for early immigrants in yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, there are no descendants from those families back then, mm -hmm. from from that time. I know there was a family in town. I had somebody tell me the other day, uh, Chinese family, and I, th I think they owned the Joy Young. He lived at the corner of Perkins and Park on the northwest corner. The house burned couple of years ago, I know the, the young man, one of them that lived there went to Christian Brothers because I have people yeah, yeah. That, that told me that the, and the, the family that ran that restaurant had been here quite a while. Right, Joy Young was quite a while. Yeah, they were first over there on Union Avenue just between Kimbrough and Roselle. Because they, they were very successful, they had multiple locations, even in Birmingham, Alabama, right? 
Yeah, his name is not Joy Young. His name is Jack Wong. But, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. that's besides the point. But anyway, uh, Jack Wong uh, came from, uh, immigrated from China to Birmingham where his parents were. Uh, and they had uh, a restaurant there. Uh, he decided to go out on his own. He wanted to actually kind of have a chain of restaurants across the country. But he came to Memphis, I believe, in uh, 1955 or 52 when he came, opened his first restaurant downtown on 3rd Street and Union. And he was there for a number of years until uh, I think he had to uh, move out. So he found the second location uh, further up on uh, Union. Mm -hmm. and. So he still called the restaurant Joy Young. Now, Joy Young in Chinese has a meaning that many of these uh, uh, Chinese, especially laundrymen, name their laundry that has meaning like prosperity or make a lot of money. Mm. So a lot of people think it's their name. No, it, it means mm -hmm. something in Chinese. Okay, so 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 Jack uh, Jack Wong. Um, well, was a very active in uh, local civic affairs, very generous person. He had big ideas uh, about his uh, restaurant. He wanted a restaurant that was not typical chop suey house. Mm -hmm. In his restaurant on Union, he had white tablecloth, nice silver, you know, uh, uh, stemware. He has uh, grass cloth on, on, on the walls. In fact, it was, uh, I think the uh, interior design was by... Uh, he get Jack Francis Moss assistant Ma. in his... I think yeah. Francis Mott. Oh, Francis Mott, right. Uh, Francis yeah. Mott, right, yeah. Now, the his, architect. Jack Wong's idea of a restaurant was that it had to be quiet, had the nice ambiance. So he put the dishwasher towards the furthest he could put it in the kitchen so it did not disturb his clients. Cool. And he had booths in his restaurant for privacy. At Elmwood, and I would love to research these people, but I can't, I can't read Chinese. So all of the families that are buried at Elmwood all were from here. No. None, I mean, no. but, but they lived here, right? No. Uh, oh, okay. Then. So Amy did the great research. You know, every tombstone. Yeah, there. well, I'm glad you could do it because yeah. I couldn't, you did, I couldn't, you I couldn't decipher it. Yeah. There, there are a few, okay, back in the in 1920s, 1930s, Chinese were not allowed to be buried in the white cemeteries. So, and the Chinese actually wanted to be uh, returned to China. They didn't want their ghosts to be wandering around. <laughs> they wanted uh, their, their yeah. families to go to their gravesite every year, what they call Qingming, okay? But because of the, uh, the war, uh, and some of them did not want to go back to China, so they uh, were buried here in the United States. And of course, I think one of the reasons that they wanted to be buried with other Chinese, which is understandable. 
So there are a few people from Arkansas and Mississippi that are buried at Elmwood, but the majority are from Memphis. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you cleared that yeah. up because yeah. I found that really interesting. Yeah. And if I could have read them, I just, I've researched every single policeman and fireman buried at Elmwood. Right. Yeah. Well, in yeah. fact, the, the Julie Hanks, uh, the grandfather of uh, the Sugarman, Julie Hank and his wife, Carol Lee, are buried in the Chinese section at Elmwood. Wow. Yeah. It is the largest of uh, these uh, cemetery that has the Chinese, you know, uh, tomb, tombs there, sites in the Misas, actually. I'm glad you, I'm glad you yeah. clarified that. How many, how many? How many? That's interesting. 300? Close, close to 300. 300 I'm having to more recount all the time. So they have been through three phases. The very first phase right now, then they did another phase. So they're working on a, they started a new third phase. So one of our uh, historical society's uh, mission, uh, a goal is to set a, uh, a mar marker, you know, there, so that to tell the story. So, because the Elmwood is very, very well visited by people around, you know, the country. Mm -hmm. So we want to have a little marker there sure. someday to be able to you know, explain why the Chinese are here, you know. So it's a, be a, make a, it is a stop today so it can better serve the, the those curious people to, to learn why. Tell me something about the church churches for there was a Korean church, it burned, uh, at Parkinson Princeton. Yeah. Uh, but are there churches that just or do you just people just go to every wherever they want to attend church or in Memphis there are about three or four Chinese churches. Okay, and uh, First Chinese Baptist on Macon, Grace Baptist Church in Collerville, and uh, there's another Second Presbyterian. Grove. Yeah, Mandarin and the Walnut Grove. So there's three or four churches there. The, the, the First Chinese Baptist is the oldest, okay, and actually it has a beginning from the First Baptist Church on um, Poplar. Poplar and East Parkway. And uh, the, the, uh, one of the uh, founder of that church is actually uh, Caldo. Dr. Right? Caldo. Dr. Caldo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Paul he was from yeah. there and he started a Chinese mission in the 40s. Yeah. Okay, we have, we're going to have some pictures about that. Yeah. And this is a photo exhibit. And then the grown and the grown until their 60s. They were like hundreds of, it's being very big. So they decided to uh, really have their own site. So eventually they acquired the Macon land and built the first Chinese Baptist church. And uh, so the photo exhibit I was talking to you earlier would have, we'll have some good information about that. Are they speaking Chinese in, these, in the service? Well, yeah. it's, it's yeah. A Chinese, oh, Cantonese, cool. English. <laughs> I mean, if you go to their service, it typically first Chinese Baptist, you have a Chinese and English translation. So everything you hear twice. <laughs> okay. If you have a false language. Yes. That's the way to do it. Yeah. And of course then I have is is there anything that either one of y'all have on your agenda that you would like to talk about here? Here's your platform, here's your opportunity. We were how many people are we reaching now? About ten thousand something. Oh like wow, okay. Uh, that, that listen to us, yeah, and then yeah. of course we yeah. interact this site with uh, 
two Facebook pages. Right, yeah. It happened in Memphis right, yeah. and Memphis and Pictures, right, and yeah. it will overlap. So right. between those three, we reach a, right. a lot of folks. So if there's anything that y'all would like to, that's on your mind that you that we yeah. have not talked about, right. that you would like to mention, now's a great time to do it. Right. Uh, let me make a couple points here. First, as we talk about history, right, Chinese-American history in particular, um, I think not many people know that the Chinese have been in Memphis 150 years. Right. They've been in the U.S. more than 200 years. However, the, because of we're a minority and not many people know a Chinese person, so there is always this foreignness for Chinese, regardless whether they're being here for generations or people like me who just arrived. So a lot of time, you know, for her probably it's more awkward for her. People ask her, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Mississippi. They don't believe you're from Mississippi. They think, where are you really from? So that really to some people is really very, uh, what do you call it, offensive, really, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. And a lot of Americans assume a Chinese face has to be new, very recent. It does not offend me because I am from Beijing, okay? But for my daughters, for people like Amy, who've been here for generations, that kind of a little bit uh, uncomfortable. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And we're nice people. We're not going to say, well, you know, yeah. why do you assume I'm, you know. Right. So that's one. Okay. Another thing you heard about Chinese Exclusion Act, the prosecution of Chinese over the American history. And there's a saying, I'm a history buff, I like to, you know, like, like, so to see, the history is not, what, what's the word, it's something that's not even past. Jimmy Rout has something that he says. It's not even things, past, history is not even past. He, he says something that like, what we're supposed to do as historians uh, is we're supposed to give uh, history a future. Oh, okay, here it is. The past is never dead, it's not even past. Have you heard of that quote? I've heard that quote, yes. Okay. Cool. It's by William Faulkner. Yep. The past is never dead, it's not even past. Okay. So we're talking about Chinese Exclusion Act. So we saw that was dead, you know. But, you know, it lasts 70 some years, right? And uh, so the, with the new U.S. China tension these days, I don't know if you ever you ever heard about this. In the state of Texas, Florida, South Carolina, the state houses are passing new laws to exclude Chinese immigrants from owning land or real estate property. Because they say because of to protect national security, okay, and they want to exclude immigrants from China to owning properties. So these laws has been around things 100 years ago. They're called alien land laws in California, in Texas, and they were thrown out by eventually by U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. However, because of rising U.S.-China tension, the balloons overthrew, overfly, and there is a great deal of anti-China sentiment is in many many places. Okay. So. It's happening again. It is discriminatory. It single out certain group of people 
under different treatment. So almost like this. So you go to buy a land in Florida, they're gonna ask you, oh, you look Chinese. Are you from China? Amy gonna say, I'm not. They're gonna say, well, how you can prove you're from now from China, right? So now she has to figure out, has to carry a passport, or she has to carry her birth certificate, yeah. okay? Would a seller even want to get into trouble of selling something that potentially could violate the law, they may help self go to prison? So, the, so this law has been passed in Florida today. And I'm just saying, it's not dead, it's not even passed, and the history can repeat itself. Yeah. Yeah, so we got to learn from our history, you know, to, to say no to all these yeah. new exclusions. Yeah. To, to add to that, to, to learn from our history, that means education. And there are no Asian studies in our school systems, well, in the South at least. So I would, I mean, I wish I had Asian studies or had Asian history when I was growing up. I mean, what I know is what I had to learn on my own. Um, if you, if you, if people took Asian history or whatever, then they would not be so afraid yeah, yeah. of a person with a different right. color or face. Asian history is American history, as we <coughs> talked about earlier about in the birthright citizenship and many other stories really become American history. Right. And uh, we, we, we definitely would, would like to see more uh, education in the curriculum. You know, from A Cape question, how many Chinese families are there in the city of Memphis today? Do we know? Well, I, I always look in, into the census data from time to time and uh, 2010 census had some more than 5,000 individuals in the, in the census that identified themselves with Chinese kind of ancestry. Uh, 2020, 2020, which is the most recent census, the number maybe is roughly around 10,000. So, so it's really not a big population. Um, so they're part of a, but the larger percentage of population are foreign born in Shelby County, that's for sure. They're the 12% population in Shelby County are foreign-born. Hmm. So that means more than 100,000 our, you know, Shelby County residents actually, they're from, they were not born in the, in the United States. Right. They're from China, you know, uh, Latin America, Africa, uh, Middle East, Europe. So, yes. so it's a pretty large that's population. A, that's a large yeah. number, yeah. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Our Memphis History. Make sure to follow us on Facebook. Go out to ourmemphishistory.com. Listen to the old podcasts that we've got archived out there. Follow us on social media. Until next time, thanks.